This is our friend Josh Fuller. He's one of the elders here at the church. Um, we've lived a lot of life together, haven't we, over Agreed. the years? Yep. Um, dear, dear friend, and he gets to bring the word. You've heard him hopefully before, um, and just uh, he loves Scripture the way I love Scripture, and he is right along with us. When we say we will always preach the Word of God, he is no different. Mm. And so right now, we get to, he gets to dive into a passage. It was hard for me to let you preach this one, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because just like every other passage, it's one of my favorites. I know. Um, it should all be your favorites. So it, it's okay. it just, and I just, I can't help it. I love it. <laughs> so 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Are you ready for the Word today? Yeah. Let's dive into the Word of God. Thanks, yeah, brother. I love it. Love you, man. you. Good morning. Happy New Year. I'm so glad you guys are here. It's really fun to be together. Um, so it's New Year's Eve and you're at church and tomorrow's a new year. So help me out. What do you expect the teacher to teach on on New Year's Eve? Anybody? Jesus. You got it. So what I was hoping you were going to say is New Year's resolutions, but you, I'm sure someone said that. I just couldn't hear you. Um, so New Year's resolutions are kind of a, f a funny thing to think about. When we say New Year's resolution, really what we mean is like a goal, right? I have a goal that I want to uh, accomplish this year. Some of you might be setting those. You might say, hey, I want to lose 20 pounds this year. I'm going to go to the gym three times a week this year. Or uh, I have a, a person in my family who said, my goal was to read 52 books this year, and they did it. I was like, wow, that's a cool New Year's resolution, a goal. So we say resolution, but really we mean goal. And so um, but the word resolution is different than a goal. Word resolution is firmer. So resolution is like, hey, things have changed. They're not the same anymore. When you think about, I'll give you a couple of examples of how that word is used. So in healthcare, you might, let's say I get this crazy rash on my arm, right? I don't have a rash, so the people in the front row, you'll be okay. Uh, uh, a crazy rash on my arm, and I go to the doctor, and they give me this cream, and they say, hey, put the cream on every day, twice a day, come back two weeks, I go back in two weeks, a rash is gone. They're going to say, wow, your rash is completely resolved. It's gone. It's very different than before. Or you might see it in government or in, in law where someone will say, oh, you know, hey, the resolution passes 13 to 1, and now this thing is going to be changed moving forward. We're not going to do this anymore, or we will do this moving forward. The idea of resolution is firmer, more concrete. Something is very different now. And so the Bible doesn't actually tell us, hey, it's a good thing to set New Year's resolutions and we set these things to be better, right? I want to be better in some way next year than this last year. It doesn't really tell us that, but the Bible does tell us instead of setting something new to be better, the Bible tells us we could have a new life in Christ. And it doesn't wait for a new year to start, it could actually start today. So we're going to jump into scripture and look at that together. Um, today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You're welcome to turn there if you have your Bibles with you. And we'll read that together again in a moment. Paul is the author of this. And Paul is going to show us how the gospel, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute, how the gospel, in this section, he talks about how the gospel can transform us in four ways. Now, there's many more than that. But Paul is going to focus on four. How it transforms our motivation how it transforms our relationships, how it transforms our behaviors, and then transforms our message. Got it? Ready? 
All right, well, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read God's word together. We stand here um, because it shows respect and reverence, right? This is not a book that just anybody wrote. This is the word of God, God breathed and beneficial for all of us. And so if you're newer here, um, one of the things we do is we like to get y'all involved. So there'll be the passage will be up on the screen. If it's underlined, I'm going to ask y'all to read it. If it's not, I will read it for you. Fair enough? So that's going to pop up here and we're going to read it together. For the love of Christ, us, because we have concluded this. Okay, look at that word concluded. That is resolved resolution type language. Very firm, right? We have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, it's another resolution type word. Things are different now. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might who for their sake died and was raised. So from now on, therefore, there it is again, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, there's that therefore again, concrete, resolved, resolution type language. If anyone is in Christ, he is a? Yes, the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, there it is again, concrete, firm, resolved. Therefore, we are God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. This is the word of the Lord. Y'all can have a seat. So uh, Paul, Paul wrote this. Remember, we studied 1 Corinthians for quite a while in this church earlier this year. Paul was the author of that letter to the church in Corinth. Paul's also the author of this letter to the church in Corinth. And so what he does in this section is he's going to start by rooting us in exactly what the gospel is. But it's, there's a couple of words. So he doesn't go in the long version. It's a very short version, but we're going to start there. So look with me at verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded, resolution language, this. That one has died. Remember that. Remember, one has died for all. And then he says a little bit later, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's so what Paul is going to do. He's going to unpack the gospel, and then he's going to show us how the gospel ultimately transforms our motivation. So maybe you're newer to church, and you've heard this word gospel. Don't exact, not exactly sure what it means. Let me help you out. So the gospel is a Greek word. It means good news. I really feel like, I don't know if you can redefine a Greek word, but I feel like we should make it like awesome news or spectacular, like use a really powerful adjective, but it is good news. And the good news, the gospel is this, that you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. We have fallen short of God's standard. And the penalty, the Bible says, for falling short of that standard is death. <laughs> Welcome to church. The penalty for that sin is death, spiritual and physical death. But God, in his goodness, sent his one and only son, Jesus, to live the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live, to die the criminal's death, because we commit treason against the most high king when we, when we sin, and the penalty for treason is death. 
to, to die the death we were supposed to die, humiliated totally and completely on the cross. Three days later, he rose from the grave to kick sin and death in the teeth and give us an opportunity to have eternal life. That is good news. There's no way I can get myself right with God. My good deeds will not, will not offset my bad deeds. They won't. There's not scales in heaven. The scale is tipped way against us and we can't untip it. So the good news is that Jesus came down and tipped those scales for us so that we can have eternal life. That's the good news. And look at the language Paul uses to describe that gospel. He, he, he hearkens back to it that one has died for all. He's referring to Jesus, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That's gospel. Jesus coming to live for us, dying for us, rising from the grave. That's the language he uses. But he adds something. He says, we've concluded this, that one has died for all. We're on the same page there. And look at the next words. Therefore, that's that therefore resolution type language. All have died. Now, hold up a second. If you are a transformed follower of Jesus, you have surrendered your life to Jesus. The old you before you knew Jesus is dead 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 the old you is dead think just think about it for a second i've heard people say oh man i have this this buddy from high school or college and i was kind of like in some wild living then and man i can't talk to them about jesus because they <laughs> knew the type of person i was oh that's perfect perfect you can start your conversation this way you know the old me when we used to party in college he died He's dead. I want to tell you how I became new. Man, that is cool. We see that in baptism. I know the pastors aren't always mic'd up, so you can't always hear what they're saying, but they say to people when they're baptized, buried with Christ, because the old me is dead, and raised to new life. It's a picture of the gospel. Paul's painting the picture of the gospel here, and he's helping us understand you've died. The old you has died. He gone. And so it then ends up changing our motivation because look what Paul says, but for him who for their sake died and was raised, he uses that language that those who live, that's us, might no longer live for themselves. The implication here is that I died because Christ died and because Christ lives, I now live and I don't live for myself any longer. I actually live for him. The gospel changes our motivation. So here's, there's language elsewhere in scripture that supports this. You see, I am not my own. I was bought at a price. What's that saying? I died. And I no longer live for myself. I live for him. I'm a slave or a bond servant to Christ. Paul, Paul writes about that in multiple other of the letters. We just sang this song, Christ be magnified in my life. Why? Because I don't live for myself anymore. I live for him. The gospel has the power to change our motivation. And so it makes us ask ourselves the question, who am I living for? And now look, I know a lot of times we like, we ask questions in church and it's like, oh, it's a good, it's a thinker. I'm going to ponder this. I, I actually want you to write the question down and talk about it. If you've got a pencil, pen, whatever, put it in your phone. This is a really important question. Who am I living for? In my home with my wife or my husband or my kids, who am I living for? When I'm in my workplace, who am I actually living for? Do I claim to live for Jesus, but actually I'm living for me? 
I want the money, I want the promotion, I want this and I want that. Who am I living for? Am I living for the HR department that says I can't talk about Jesus? Or am I living for him who we'll see later calls me to actually be a messenger? Who am I living for? The gospel has the power to change our motivations. Kids, young people, you're in here today, middle school, high school, college. Who are you living for in school? Are you living for the athletic team you're a part of? Are you living for being in the popular crowd? Are you living based on the expectations of your friends? Who are you living for? Paul wants us to see that the gospel actually changes our motivation. Because I've been bought at a price, I don't get to live for myself anymore. I was probably 14 or 15. I don't remember how old I was uh, exactly. But I remember when I first heard the gospel from beginning to end. Like when I was growing up and we'd go to church, I'd hear, you know, who built the ark? Noah, Noah. I knew those songs. And I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. But it wasn't until I was 14 or 15. I was at a production uh, at a youth group event that some friends invited me to called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. So if that doesn't paint a picture for you of what that was like, I don't know what else will. But I was like, oh, there it is. The gospel's on display. Right? You choose Jesus, you go to heaven. You don't choose Jesus, you go to hell. Very clear. And so it was that night at that production, I felt God pierce my heart. And I was like, oh, I have to make a choice. I'm going to accept the gift of grace that God offers me through Jesus, or I'm going to reject it. But I actually have to make that choice. And I'm so thankful the Lord called me that night, and I went forward, and they prayed with me, and they gave me a Bible and those kind of things. But I would say that one of the things missing for me after that was... Um, discipleship training, right? I knew that I got to go to heaven, but I didn't get a lot of discipleship training to understand deeper. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I started reading the Bible on my own and uncovered some things that I was like, holy smokes, where was this when I was 14? I never heard this part. And the part is that actually when we sign up to say, yes, I want the free gift of grace God offers me through his son, Jesus, that there's actually a trade-off or a cost And Jesus himself writes about, speaks about the cost of discipleship. He says, he gives a couple analogies. Jesus is so good with analogies to help us understand. He says, hey, look, y'all, if you're going to go build a house, first thing you're going to do is figure out how much money is it going to cost me to build a house, right? Before you start building the house. Yes. If you're going to go to war, the general is going to say, how much is this war going to cost me in lives and casualties before I go to the war? And the same is true if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, he says. If you want to be my disciple, you will count the cost. What is the cost? My life. I no longer get to live for me anymore. I actually now get to live for him. The gospel will change your motivation. Who are you living for? The second thing we see is in verse 16. So look with me at verse 16. I'm going to read from the ESV again, and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because the, the, the way it's written is just is really, really helpful. ESV says, from now on, therefore, there's that resolution language, different, therefore, different from now on. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We should use thus more in sentences. Just that's a footnote. I'm going to try to do that this year. That's going to be my resolution. Use thus in the sentence. But look at the NLT. We've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view, but how differently we know him now. Okay, this is Paul writing this. Remember Paul's story. 
Paul was a high-ranking Jewish official. He was persecuting Christians. He knew about Jesus. Knew who he claimed to be, knew that people were following him, knew facts and figures. It was almost like he was reading a, a history book. He knew about Jesus and regarded him according to human standards, he says. But then he actually met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he blinded him. Jesus said, hey, I'm going to flip your world upside down. You've been persecuting Christians. You're going to become a Christian and actually establish churches. And Paul says here that how differently we know him now. That word know, K-N-O-W, is the Greek word ginosko. It's the same word to describe how a husband knows his wife. You tracking with me? How a husband knows his wife? Intimately. So Paul knew facts and figures about Jesus, but then he actually got to know Jesus intimately. John 3.16, most of you at least have heard of that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. And then later on in his gospel, John says, and this is eternal life, that they would know God, K-N-O-W, and know Jesus whom he has sent intimately. And that's what Paul is referring to here. He's like, how differently I know him now. I used to know him as facts and figures, like I was reading a book and now I actually know him. Well, why does this matter? Because the, Im the implication is that we start to also get to know people differently because the gospel impacts our relationships. We stop evaluating others from a human point of view. Oof. It's like a giant therapy session. Don't we love to evaluate people from a human point of view? We're so good at it. We're so good at it. I don't have a lot of gifts, but I'm super gifted at that. Evaluating others at a human point of view. We love to, oh, they shouldn't be doing that. Oh, they shouldn't be doing that. Oh, that person might not, that's not, they're not capable of that. And I think what Paul is saying is not that we don't evaluate people because we see other places in the scriptures where we're called, especially in relationship to hold people accountable. He's saying you should evaluate them, but you don't evaluate them from a human perspective. You evaluate them from God's perspective. So instead we see people for who they could become in Christ. We see the fact that every human being on the planet is created in the image of their creator with inherent value, worth, and dignity, regardless of whether they've surrendered their life to Jesus or not. We see them for their potential in Christ. We see people as sinners. Yes, hello, people are sinners in need of a savior, just like me. And that should make me empathetic to their plight. There's a book we're reading in our small group called Marriage by Paul David Tripp. If you haven't read it, highly recommend it. And one of the key things he pulls out in that book is, hey, wake up, you're a sinner married to a sinner. He says it over and over and over. You're a sinner married to a sinner. I am a sinner who needs a savior. And so Paul is saying, because we know Jesus intimately, we don't regard others from a human point of view. We're his now. So we actually regard them from God's point of view. We see their potential in Christ. We know that transformation is a continual process that's possible for anyone. God can redeem anyone at any time from anything. And so it makes us take stock of the relationships in our life. And in light of the gospel, we have to ask the question, what is one relationship in my life that needs changing? Again, it's not a hypothetical question. You got something to write with. I'm guessing someone's name has popped in your head. Write it down. There's a relationship in your life that probably needs changing. The person who really, really hurt you.
person who really disappointed you multiple times, the person that seems beyond forgiving, the person that made fun of you or cut in on you or took that promotion or said something nasty to you in the hallway. I will tell you for me, when I was preparing, God really put on my heart a couple of folks who, to be honest, are, are, are kind of just mean. They're just mean. And it really bothers me. And so instead of seeing them for, oh man, what has happened in their life that's caused them to be so callous and angry and mean and have empathy, I just kind of want to ignore them. But that's not godly. The gospel transforms our relationships. God, uh, Paul wants us to see that what God wants to do is give us a new perspective on people. We don't see them through a human lens. We see them through God's lens. It changes our relationships. The third thing we see here is that the gospel also transforms our behavior. Okay. If you're walking through an orchard and you see apples on trees, what type of a tree is it? What type of a tree is it? Ah, it's an apple tree. If you see lemons on a tree, what type of a tree is that? <laughs> I think someone said apple tree again. It's not a trick question. No, it's a lemon tree. Okay, so the Bible talks, uses that analogy to talk about our lives, that we bear fruit. Our behaviors look different. People will know we are a Christian by the way that we live. It doesn't mean we don't have to open our mouth. We'll get there in a minute. But the gospel has the power to transform our behavior. So look what Paul says in verse 17. Therefore, there's that different, concrete, resolve type language. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We talked about this idea of passing away earlier, right? The old me, he's dead. But Paul goes a step further and says, you're actually a new creation. It's not the first time we've heard this. Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we call those the Gospels. The same story told by four different perspectives. Jesus is meeting with this Jewish leader at night. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus says, in order for a person to go to heaven, they must be born again. And Nicodemus is like, wait a minute. I'm an old man. How in the world am I going to go back in my mother's stomach to be born again? Jesus is like, no, no, no. You're born once that way, but you're also born of the spirit. And we say, and you've probably heard in church before, I'm born again, right? I'm a new life. I'm a new creation. That's what Paul is getting to. And when you look at the Blue Letter Bible is a great resource for you to help. Uh, you can get on your tablet or whatever, when you look up new creation, it kind of helps us understand it. It says, as it respects the substance of a new kind. When we say yes to the grace offered to us from God through Christ, our old self dies. And it doesn't just die. We're made into a new creation of a new substance, something of a new kind. And then Paul uses to describe, as he, he tells us, we're in, we're in Christ, we're a new creation. The old has passed away. Look at the next word he chooses to use. Behold. Behold, the new has come. You recognize that we sing that in a song here sometimes. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold our God seated on his throne. I just pictured John the Baptist standing in the river, baptizing, 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 and Jesus starts walking up and the crowds move and John the Baptist is like, oh, everybody stop. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's like, you got to stop and see this, be in awe of what's, of what's taking place. And he uses the same word here. 
when we when our old self dies and we are our new creation, Paul says, wow, that is something to behold. Wow, they are of a new substance. The fruit produced in this person is super different now. Their behaviors will change. See, the gospel has the, the ability to fuel and change our behavior. My old life is gone. I don't do the same stuff anymore. And I'll share with you, there's, there's a whole list of ways our, our lives, our behaviors will look different because the gospel has the power to change us. We don't do anything out of selfish ambition or in vain conceit, but in everything we consider others better than ourselves. The world would not say that. The world would say, well, minimize the things you do out of selfish ambition, but make sure you go and get yours and look out for number one. Well, that's not what the gospel says. That's not what the Bible says. Husbands, we love our wives as Christ loved the church and we give ourselves up for her. We consider others better than ourselves. We take every thought captive. We flee from sin. We give generously and love generously because he gives and loves to us. We forgive willingly because he willingly forgave us. The gospel has the, the power and the ability to change our behaviors. We seek to serve, not be served. Why? Because the gospel has changed us. I am of a new substance. That old me, he's dead. I'm a, I'm a new creation of a new substance and I produce new fruit because my behavior changes. I do want to park here for just a minute because the grace of God and the forgiveness offered to us through Jesus, the Bible describes it as separating your sin as far as the East is from the West. Every type of sin is forgiven through Jesus. Every type big, small, frequent, infrequent. As far as the east is from the west, they're separated from you. And it's hard for us to fathom that kind of forgiveness. I think there are some of us in here today who understand God has forgiven us, but you cannot forgive yourself. That old you is dead, but you keep walking by and looking in the casket. It's so hard. I can't, I've had people say to me, I can't imagine how in the world God can forgive me because I can't forgive myself. So I want you just for a minute. You are a new creation. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, you are a new creation. A new creation. You are a new creation. You're not a recycled, better version. You're a new creation. You're new, you're new, you're new. And some of us forget. We forget that we're a new creation. Your sin is, is separated from you as far as the east is from the west when you give your life to Jesus and he makes you a new creation. You are of a new substance. So can you just like let Jesus grab you in a big hug and squeeze you for a minute? You're a new creation. New, new, you're new. It makes us ask the question because the gospel is so good and you're a new creation and different fruit is produced. We have to ask the question, so what then is actually fueling my behavior? If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, my behavior should look different. What's fueling my behavior? What am I filling myself with? You've heard the old phrase, you are what you eat. What are we filling ourselves with? What's fueling my behavior? Again, this is not like a rhetorical question that you're going to, I don't want you to forget this five minutes from now when you walk out the door. I really want you to think about it and share with people. 
And I'm going to help you out. You know what you can do tomorrow, January 1st? You can start reading one chapter of Matthew a day, and you'll be done by the end of January. You'll actually be done a couple of days early. And read the words of Jesus and allow the truth of the gospel to influence you and fuel your behavior. Because the gospel has the power to do that. It makes you a new creation with new behavior. And the last thing we see here in verses 18 through 21 is the gospel transforms the message that we share. Paul says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Well, there's a lot of big words in there. Reconciliation is this. Hey, me and you get into an argument. We're really mad at each other. And then as my mama used to say, then you kiss and make up, right? Yeah, we're reconciled. That's what reconcile means. Okay, we got together. We apologize. We're good. We're in right relationship now. We are not in right relationship with God on our own. Can't make a way there. Can't do it. Your good deeds won't outweigh your bad deeds. Not going to happen. But through Christ, God has reconciled us back to himself. We have been forgiven. We're a new creation. Now we have a right relationship with God. We know him intimately like a husband knows his wife. And because of that, we actually have a ministry. Did you know you have a ministry? It doesn't say, hey, if you're a pastor at the church, you have a ministry. Hey, if, if you come every week to the same service and sit in the same place, you have a ministry. Hey, as long as you've read the whole Bible from cover to cover, then you have a ministry. That's not what it says. If you have been saved and reconciled to God, you have a ministry. You have a ministry. You're a new creation with new behaviors and a new ministry. And I love this phrase, we are ambassadors for Christ. You think about an ambassador. What does an ambassador do? It takes the message from the message giver, full weight and authority. You are an ambassador. I wish we had lapel pins for you to wear. You're an ambassador. You are the messenger. If you have been transformed and received the love and grace and mercy of Jesus, you get to go out and share the love of grace of mercy of Jesus with other people. Why? Because you're a messenger. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You gave that right up when you said yes to Jesus, and that's way better. I don't want to be in control of my life. I'd rather him be in control. I have a new message, and I have, I'm a messenger. And yes, it's you, the one with the, the messed up past and the broken vessel, and you keep slipping and tripping and stumbling. Yes, you, who are still a sinner who needs a Savior, you are a messenger. The gospel has the power to transform the message that we share with our mouths. God wants to make his appeal through you to other people. So here's my last question for you. Who's the one person who God wants to use you to share the love of Jesus with? There is somebody, and you probably know without thinking who it is. Who's the one person God wants to use you to share the love of Jesus with? Because you're a messenger. So we think about a new year, fresh start, these, this language Paul uses, very resolved, firm language. And we see how the gospel changes our motivation, our relationships, and our behaviors, and the message that we share. But I conveniently skipped over something for you at the very beginning of this passage. Paul says the first things that were in this that we read together is, for the love of Christ controls us. Wah, wah. We don't really like to be controlled, do we? I want to be in control. Me. 
The cost of discipleship is that when we say yes to a life with Jesus, we actually give up control. You're probably familiar with the Psalm, be still and know that I am God. I'm terrible at sitting still. You can ask my wife. I always want to be doing something, so I don't quite understand that. A different translation is let go and know that I am God. I let go of control. I don't live for me. I live for him. So who's in control of your life? You want to see all these changes we just talked about that Paul referenced? Motivation, relationships, behaviors changed. Good. All of that starts, though, with the gospel changing you. The very first thing that has to happen is you have to accept the free gift of grace that God offers through Christ. He has to change you first. And some of you are here and you're like, yes, you know what? I, I hear all this stuff and I've been coming to church, but man, I, I, I don't, I'm not his ambassador and I live for myself. And the question to ask is, well, have you ever actually surrendered to Jesus? Have you ever actually let God change you from dead to live? Are you the old creation walking around masquerading? Or maybe you come here because you're like, hey, tomorrow's a new year. I want to get the family back in church, you know, give them a good foundation. That's great. I'm so glad you're here. But I love you too much to let you leave without me asking you, but have you ever actually surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you want the gospel to change you? I don't want you to have a recycled version of yourself this next year. I want you to have a new life and quit playing church. And it's hard to say yes, but it is so freeing. I invite you to die to yourself and to say yes to Jesus and let the gospel change you first. And when you leave today, any one of us, green lanyards, elders, staff would love to have that conversation because we're a church that walks with you. For the gospel can change all those things the gospel needs to change you and we have to give up control. That's what surrender means. I surrender. So we get to do something that has been happening for 2000 years. We get to take something called communion. Now this is for the believer in Jesus. So if you are here today and you've been coming to church, you're excited about what you hear, but you haven't professed faith and trust and surrendered your life to Jesus, I'm just going to ask you to abstain. It's not because I don't love you. This is for the believer. But if that's you and you're, you're going to abstain, I do want you to watch and I want you to listen and I invite you to come and ask us a question afterwards. Because for 2,000 years, we do this because Jesus told us to do this. He was with his disciples in the upper room the night before he died. And he said, whenever you do this, I want you to do this and remember me. And he says that the, the juice is symbolic of the blood that he shed for us. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lamb had to be slain. The blood spilt on the altar. And this is symbolic of that. Your sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. And he said, every time you take the cup and drink, I want you to do it and remember that. 
And then he said, the same is true of the bread. Every time you eat the bread, I want you to remember that it is my body that's been broken for you. Don't forget, church, I broke it for you. I died so that you could die and you could have a new life. Don't forget. And every, think, about, think about this. We heard the gospel from someone because someone else was bold enough to tell it to us. And someone else was bold enough to tell it to them and tell it to the people before that, before that, for 2,000 years. I don't want my old life. I am so grateful for a new life. So today we remember the blood of Christ that has been shed for us and the body of Christ that has been broken for us. When you're ready, you may take and eat and drink. so grateful, humbled, that you came to not just rescue us from ourselves, but you came to make a way where there was no way. You don't just refurbish us, you make us a new creation. Yes, we still have scars, but those are just stories we get to tell about how you redeemed us. You, you change us from the inside out that begins with our surrender to say that I want to live a life controlled by the Lord, not controlled by me. I want to change how I behave and change my relationships and change the way I speak about you and change what motivates me. I want to live for you. And Lord, it starts with us recognizing we're sinners in need of a savior. And so even as we take communion today, we celebrate and are grateful and we behold, wow, what you did when you made us new. You're the only one, Jesus, the only one who can take our ashes and make them beautiful and turn our mourning into dancing. You are the only one who can, and we give you praise and honor for that. In Jesus' name, 